0: Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Wednesday, September 23rd. We begin with a tee-up of the Liberal government's throne speech. We speak with MRU political science professor Laurie Williams on what we can expect to hear.
1: Then we continue the conversation on a very busy day in Ottawa, including a rare post-throne speech televised address by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. We talk with Global's chief political correspondent David Aiken.
0: Next, it's another edition of Ask the Doctor with University of Calgary Infectious Disease Specialist, Dr. Craig Janney. Dr. Janney answers coronavirus questions as sent in by you.
1: And finally, as cases of COVID-19 continue to rise in younger people, we look at the approach being taken to address the issue. We speak with a neuroscientist from Carleton University who says the key is to focus on messaging surrounding physical distancing. 7.09 now, Sue DL, Andrew Schultz with you here on the Morning News. And as Canada's Parliament returns and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau seeks to put an ethics scandal behind him, his government will unveil its plans for the country's pandemic response and recovery. And with more details on what to expect later today when the throne speech comes down, we're joined now by political science professor at Mount Royal University, Laurie Williams. Hi, Laurie. Hi, Sue. Well, thanks so much for joining us. I mean, obviously, you you don't know, none of us do, but if you can look into your crystal ball, what do you think... The prime minister might focus most on. Is it obviously going to be pandemic response? It is,
2: uh, and so it's going to be both economic and healthcare focused with respect to those things. Uh, I don't think there's going to be much else in this or in his speech. I think the primary focus is going to be we're we're in a crisis. Uh, everybody can see that cases are are um, ticking up in Europe, in the UK. Uh, and even in Ontario and Quebec right now, to some degree in Alberta, the concern is this is the, the second wave perhaps coming and that, that we need for the economy, for the health of Canadians, we need to really focus on, on trying to deal with the crisis.
0: Laurie, has there ever been a more anticipated or perhaps more important uh, throne speech in, in the past uh, couple of decades?
2: There have been a couple where we have not only had had, um, crises that were um, potentially sort of on the horizon, but where there were speeches made by the Prime Minister outside of that, addressing the nation as a whole. Stephen Harper did that in 2008. Um, There was an economic crisis at that time, but also a threat um, that the the Liberals, NDP and bloc were going to offer to to govern the country in place of of, um, the Conservatives who who were trying to govern with a minority. So again, here we're seeing Mr. Trudeau trying to govern with a minority in the face of a a significant healthcare and economic crisis and and, and, of course, he's, he's going to appeal to, to Canadians in terms of what we all need to do to pull together to try to deal with this, not just in terms of, of health care, but in terms of, of the economy and what the government is going to do to help with that.
1: And, Laurie, as you mentioned, so we know the, the throne speech comes down just after noon, and then the Prime Minister, as you alluded to, will speak to the country later on. So when when the, the throne speech comes down, will he throw money at this pandemic response to continue to try and calm? fears, or is it more just words that we'll, we'll hear today? What do you expect? There's
2: going to have to be something in, in practice. I mean, this is this is not something where he can coast. Um, the key to his success uh, as, as a continuing prime minister and in the next election, whenever that happens, hinges on, on confidence in this government's ability to deal with the the health crisis that has economic consequences of such a significant degree uh, it can't just be words it's got to be actions but there's also got to be a balance there there's a lot of concern about how much money has already been spent not just by canada but by you know countries around the world um how to do that in a way that is that is prudent um s- essentially pitching this as to some degree an investment in the future um and, and something that is necessary, not something that is you know sort of imagining what what lovely things we could do for Canada mm-hmm. uh, is going to be about managing this this crisis.
0: Managing the crisis in a continuation perhaps of CERB, which officially ends this Sunday but I guess we just can't uh, you know flip the switch and have it off so are we expecting it longer than extension uh, an extension of another month do you think we could see this till the end of the year?
2: Uh, Difficult to know how long it's going to go or even what form it's going to take. I don't know if it'll just be CERB. It's it's looking like from the signals we're seeing, an expanded employment insurance uh, system. I think also they're going to be looking at, and the NDP is certainly demanding paid sick leave, and that makes sense. If you want people, particularly part-time health care workers, to stay home if they're sick, we just saw an outbreak at Foothills where a staff member went in when they were symptomatic. There's got to be money available to people so that they can afford to take the time off. So that's, I think, going to have to be part of this as well, child care to help um, women to get back to work. This recession that's been caused by service is being called a she-session because of the disproportionate impact on women. Um, in order for them to go back to work, there's got to be uh, something in the way of childcare, and of course we're seeing money already announced w- with respect to that. Um, the 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 economic recovery plan has to be part of this as well though. So not only how are we going to manage this, how are we going to manage if there is an uptick in cases, but what's the plan for economic recovery? What are the investments in uh, the economy that are going to help us not just weather this storm, but to grow um, going into the future? And that's where things like this, this electric car um, vehicle strategy come into play
1: and, yeah and then and, you know we've been hearing about that there may be some fundamental changes to how things are done in Canada coming out of this so is that how you get something like that uh, pushed through in a time uh, when we're in a time of, of stress and uncertainty by by using sick leave and, and helping women for example to, to get those fundamental changes pushed in
2: well it's certainly part of it I think pharmacare or certain. Uh, I, I mean I don't think we're going to see a big pharmacare program but uh, uh, you know, addressing The the fact that there are some people who um, can't afford their medications, and that might have implications for for uh, um, for the for the crisis, the health care crisis, as well. But there's going to be investment in testing. That's obviously a huge priority um he'll say something about vaccines but that's rooted down the road the priorities are going to be things like testing and and giving people the ability to stay away from uh the workplace when they are symptomatic and and cover them if they as many are doing unfortunately suffering symptoms over a longer period of time
0: you know you know there was a chatter weeks ago about you know today we could be uh Told that we're going to the polls again. That has seemed to have dampened and that uh, seems to have gone away. I think a lot of people would be shocked if that was the case. So if not now, when? When do you see? It? We ask everybody in the know, such <laughs> as people like yourself, uh, when it would be best for the Liberals if they actually have the ability to call the shot for the next election.
2: Well, in a lot of ways, because their handling of the pandemic so far is has been good, uh, they're, they're certainly doing well in terms of the polls on that issue, uh, there are a lot of... People who are saying it would be better for them to go to the polls now, just in terms of the numbers. But, of course, because we're dealing with uh, an increase in cases, the possibility of a second wave, the risk just looks like it's going to be too great. Um, Obviously, it worked for New Brunswick. B.C. is trying it. Mm -hmm. Um, New Brunswick is a very different place. Low case levels, uh, small sort of campaigning context to work with. It worked uh, in in New Brunswick. I don't know if it's going to work in British Columbia. I'm pretty sure whoever is responsible, if it does go to an election uh, at the federal level, there will be a price to pay for whoever forces that. Um, And of course, the the risks are becoming too great just in terms of health. Uh, Six weeks from now, we could be in uh, very significant trouble with respect to um, the number of cases, and nobody wants to be running an election at that time. That said, um as time goes forward as as you know money starts running out as people find more and more flaws in the in the uh handling of the pandemic on the part of the government, as some of these other concerns about um, the the we controversy and so forth as those start to emerge, it's going to be harder and harder for the liberals to um, to succeed in in another election. but I just don't think that anybody i mean they're all saying they don 't want an election, including Mr. Bunchet, who did at one time say. Um, that he thought that that he was willing to to push it, speaking to his caucus, they said, "No, now that he and Aaron O 'Toole have tested positive it 's just looking like the health care uh, focus is and and, the, and the, the the high contagion level of this this virus is becoming again the focus, and I think that 's the right way to go now. If those cases start to fall off again in the spring, if things start to look better, uh, I'm sure there'll be a lot of parties that are willing to look at this again. I think everything depends on, on what's happening with respect to the virus.
1: Thank you so much for your thoughts this morning, Lori. Thank you. Appreciate your time. That's Lori Williams, political science prof at MRU.
0: Time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. Enjoy established amenities, recreation facilities, and the leading school districts.
3: The situation down here in the southwest, or southeast, rather, Highway 22X and 104th Street, so just east of Stony Trail, we have a major collision here that had closed the highway. We just watched this cruise reopen traffic in both directions, uh, so traffic is now moving through. Uh, We do have light volume through much of the southeast. uh, Stony Trail, Deerfoot is moving well, just that little bit of building volume as you head between uh, Douglasdale Boulevard and, uh, and Southland Drive. McLeod Trail, that's still moving fine for you as you make your way into the downtown core. And even Glenmore Trail through the southwest, we're seeing that uh, eastbound drive only at about 9 or 10 minutes from Sarsie Trail out towards Deerfoot. Tonight's Lotto 649 draws an estimated $6 million plus the guaranteed $1 million prize. $6 million, get that Lotto 649 feeling. Up in the 770 CHQR Traffic Helicopter, I'm Freddie Howard.
0: 721 on the morning news a big day in the nation's capital a speech from the throne this afternoon followed by a possible confidence vote in the coming days all while federal public health officials warn that canada may be on its second wave of covid 19 infections our chief political correspondent david aiken is tracking it all and he joins us now from ottawa good morning david morning guys well let's start with the throne speech Uh, what can we expect to see today We'd, well, I, I wish we'd have
4: lots of details about the government's mm. plan, but generally throne speeches are about the vision thing. So I think that's going to be mostly what we'll talk about. Of course, it's the Governor General, Julie Payette, who actually reads the the government's mission. And she's going to talk about, I think, three broad themes. The first is the health crisis. There's no question uh, that is still top of mind in voters' minds. It's top of mind among many governments, uh, be they in Alberta, be there here in Ottawa. So uh, look for everything from what the federal government is doing on vaccines to PPE, to supporting provincial governments and local health authorities as they try to get a hold of the virus, to economic recovery, uh, both in broad terms but also at the household level. Because don't forget... The CERB, the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, it ends this week. And most of those on the CERB, about 3 million people, will transition to what's called a simplified employment insurance program. But there's still about a million people now getting the CERB that won't qualify for EI. And that's the self-employed, for example. The government has said it does have a, a benefits, a new benefits plan that it wants to put into place, but legislation is going to be needed. So you'll hear something about that. And finally, I think the government wants to come back to one of its themes uh, that it it really wanted to emphasize a bit more three weeks ago, maybe less so now, but it's still going to be there, and that is the green recovery, the idea of build back better. You might have heard that phrase being used a lot by progressive politicians all over the world, build back better, um, the sorts of things where you might have heard in Ontario this week, there was an announcement by Ford they're going to retool a, a car plant to build electric vehicles. They'll do it with some government money that's the sort of thing that the feds uh, like to put their uh, shoulder behind
1: uh, david big theme obviously is the pandemic and the recovery from mm-hmm. it and the you know the frank talk yesterday from canada's top public health official dr theresa tam so now the prime minister he's going to speak this evening which is very rare for him is he taking this warning to you know to task and really i guess taking us to task in the end isn't he
4: yeah, it is rare. Absolutely. Uh, in fact, uh, it's my time around Parliament Hill. Paul Martin and Stephen Harper each did one. This is the first one for Trudeau. All of those were minority governments. And in the case of Martin and Harper, they were sort of facing, you know, a potential existential crisis of their government. Not this time. Trudeau is not calling an election. He's not resigning. He's not calling for an end to the monarchy. I've seen some of these things floated on social media. It's pretty much as you mentioned. He wants to use this, this, uh, TV address to really underscore the urgency of dealing with this second wave before it gets out of hand, before we're faced possibly with local authorities having to maybe talk about more lockdowns. We don't want to get there. So he, he'll go over some of the, the, the themes from the throne speech, but then really come back to say this is, uh, you know, uh, we've, we've heard from his advisors. They're saying, you know, we need to put the nation on, on the equivalent of a war footing to deal with this second wave. So that's what the PMO thinks is so serious They need the TV time. Should point out, he's got 15 minutes beginning at uh, three. Oh, sorry, about 4:30 Mountain Time, Mm -hmm. 6:30 Eastern. That will be followed by 15 minutes of the opposition responding. Not yet sure if it'll be Aaron O'Toole because the, the conservative leader, as we all know, he and his wife have COVID. They're in sick bay. They're isolated for 14 days. Same thing with the block leader. So the opposition will have their time, but we're not sure if it's it's going to be the conservative leader using
0: it. These are, these are strange times for so many reasons, and that's just one more of those reasons. <laughs> so many questions, and they'll all be answered over the next several hours. Thank you so much for your time this morning, David. Thanks, guys. Cheers. That is David Akin, Global's Chief Political Correspondent.
1: 8.12 now, and since the beginning of the pandemic, we've been bringing on an expert to help answer all of your COVID-19 questions, and as long as you have questions, we'll work to get you the answers. And on that note, joining us again this morning is Associate Professor at the Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary, Dr. Craig Janney. Morning, Dr. Janney. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. We have a list of questions at the ready for you. Curious, though, before we get to uh, questions, that are, is there anything new in terms of uh, the science, anything that's come down as of late that we should know about that people might not be aware of when it comes to this, this COVID-19 pandemic?
5: I think a couple of quick points are, you know, vaccine trials are still progressing quite well, and, and we are optimistic that we will have a vaccine approved this calendar year. Uh, it will take a couple of months uh, for it to be approved and distributed in Canada after that, but we are making fantastic progress on that. And then I guess the other, you know, big uh development is it does look like unfortunately cases are rising across the country and we may now be at the beginning of this so-called second wave and and we may have to be taking some additional actions to to curb the numbers of cases in our community over the coming weeks because uh, clearly the numbers at least across the country are are definitely on the uptick in the last uh, few weeks so something we have to watch and, and perhaps take some action to to help suppress
0: dr jenny i've got a, a two-pronged question for you here and these were not sent in today but questions that have come up over the past couple of weeks and you can kind of think of it as greatest hits because i know you've answered these <laughs> before but if we don't have you on for a 10-day period they keep uh, rearing their ugly heads first of right. all um, if masks are mandatory now and uh, they are why have we seen cases go up and how can we be sure that the death uh, total deaths that we see for COVID 19 are actually due to COVID 19
5: so with the masks uh, you know it's always a it is an interesting question and it is a uh, understandably confusing point that if we bring in mask bylaws and cases keep going up then the logical conclusion is the masks aren't working but we have to remember that while we brought in the mask bylaw we changed a lot of other things so prior to masks for example we had much more restricted dining hours bars pubs uh, we did not have school we had reduced transit capacity so lots of other things were keeping the virus in check. And as those things reopened, viral cases began to rise dramatically. And bringing the mask bylaw then slowed that rise. And and the evidence we have for that is, again, we can look at Uh, places even as close as uh, some of the northern states uh... north dakota and other places where there is no mask bylaw and the cases there are expanding at more than tenfold the rate they are here in canada so we do know that as we reopen things cases were going to go up and wearing a mask has slow that slowed down that increase in cases Um, we really you know would be in, in a much worse place if we did not have these mask bylaws in large cities and public transit with regards to how do we know that these cases are COVID, um, you know, we have a, a uh, government uh, uh, independent reporting agency. Uh, patients are tested. And whether they, they succumbed to COVID or any other disease, there is not an increase in resources or finances or pay for the doctors that are treating these patients. So w- there is no incentive to increase the number of COVID deaths uh, uh, as far as data and in fact, we do know that the most accurate data we can get is how we better plan and deal for this pandemic. So I, I have great confidence in the numbers that we're seeing are, are reflecting the, the real situation in our hospitals and intensive care units.
1: Okay, let's get to our questions. Dr. Janney, this person's saying, I want to know how soon after a COVID exposure do you get a positive test? Symptoms 10 to 14 days, but if I'm exposed today, will it show up positive on a test tomorrow?
5: Probably not. So that's a great question. Uh, yes, Uh, the test represents one point in time so if you were exposed today and you took a test this afternoon or tomorrow morning there's a very good chance you would test negative We do know that the test tends to show up positive a couple days before symptoms begin. So if you're one of the patients who will develop symptoms in four or five days, you may test positive on day three. However, if you're somebody who doesn't develop symptoms until 10 days, it might be a number of days before you would actually register a positive test, even though you are infected. So, yeah, these are some of the problems we have with testing, is that they only represent one point in time. And really, we need to track people over a period of time to, to have a better idea
0: Here's a great one. I don't think we've had this one. I'm sure we have all experienced this when we're stopped at a traffic light. The light turns green and as you move through, you can smell cigarette smoke from vehicles in front of your car. Is it possible that the coronavirus could be mixed in with that?
5: a theoretical possibility, but we've not seen any evidence that it would spread in that fashion. So uh, we have to remember cigarette smoke is even smaller than virus, even smaller than droplets. Uh, so they can travel and linger in the air much, much longer than the virus can. So although there is always a theoretical possibility that a tiny liqu- uh, liquid droplet could hang in the air, it is extremely unlikely that that would be a method of transmission of this particular virus.
1: Dr. Jenny we have to take a quick Break, can you hang on for a sec? Of course, perfect. We'll be right back. That is Dr. Craig Janney, infectious disease specialist.
0: 817 helicopter traffic for West District by Truman, Calgary's last and best master plan community inside the Stony Trail Ring Road.
3: Well, crews are on scene to a collision at James McKevitt Road and Shaughnessy Boulevard. Both directions of Shaughnessy Boulevard are completely shut down here while crews work on this one. They've also got a northbound right lane shut down as well. We're just up in the northwest. We're checking out Stony Trail Sixteenth Avenue. Seeing some really big delays here, especially on the southbound Stony Trail exit to eastbound sixteenth Avenue. So if that's on your route, allow a couple of extra minutes. And if you are heading further west onto the Trans Canada Highway, traffic's actually down to a single lane between Valley Ridge Boulevard and Old Banff Coach Road. They've got a new lane realignment in effect there, so that'll be about five minutes or so to get through. Ford Employee Pricing ends September thirtieth, but there's still time to pay what a Ford of Canada employee pays on most new twenty twenty models. Visit your Alberta a Ford dealer up in the 770 CHQR Traffic Helicopter, I'm Reddy Howard.
1: 820, and uh, still with us, Dr. Craig Janney, Associate Professor, Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary. Uh, We'll get right back to the questions for you. Still have a handful to go. This texter says, I'm 66, had lung infection, pneumonia, and a former smoker. I need to wear a mask at work for eight hours a day. Is this healthy on my lungs? I seem to be short of breath when talking.
5: Yeah, so this is, uh, again, a good question. It, I would first recommend go ahead and, and talk to a family doctor. Uh, you know, make sure there's nothing underlying uh, conditions in there. But we do know that, for example, in healthy individuals where we've we've done the direct testing, that we can't measure any difference in, for example, blood oxygen levels if you're wearing a mask all day or not. And keep in mind that physicians and other healthcare care providers do wear a mask all day, every day, and they don't have any direct impact on their lungs or blood oxygenation. That's not to say that there are, are some people in the community that will have difficulties and these are exactly the questions you need to be asking your family doctor
0: got another one here that uh, this is fairly recent news here the cdc posted over the weekend that the virus travels as an aerosol which means it travels much further than a droplet then the post was taken down a little confusing here we're wondering what your thoughts are dr janney does it to travel in droplets or as an aerosol or a combination?
5: So yeah, this is definitely confusing and and one of the problems perhaps with, with some of the public health agencies in the United States, the virus definitely moves in both forms. So droplet and it is clearly capable of an aerosol. What we do know is that the vast majority of cases do not behave like an aerosol. And the reason why we can say that is other viruses that are truly aerosol, like measles, will infect an entire room. That's not the case with this particular virus. So it is capable of it, and in rare situations, there will be aerosol-based transmission, but the vast majority of cases are droplet-based and sort of restricted still to that two-meter range for, for most transmissions.
1: So that relates to this next question then, Chris, asking, paper or cloth only trap or stop particles or droplets? Uh, COVID-19 virus is one micron in size. Why bother with masks at all? Shouldn't we all be using the N95?
5: So, yes, uh, all of that is accurate, except the virus is largely, when it's ex- uh, released from the body, still contained in some tiny lipid or er, liquid droplet. So the virus can be really tiny, it's actually smaller than a micron, but the the liquid around it makes it a little bit bigger. What we do know is that although some virus can get through a paper mask or, or a fabric mask, we do reduce transmission by more than six-fold. So clearly those masks are reducing and, and capturing the vast majority of virus. Some can escape, but they're reducing infection by more than six-fold.
0: Before we let you go, your thoughts on the reopening of uh, schools, the cases we've seen. Is this what you'd expect, or is it more cases or less?
5: I think it's actually a little less than I was expecting, so I think this is good news. You know, We've seen reports now that 97% of schools so far are virus-free, which is great news. Uh, the other, uh, I think, good news story in this is how quickly cases have been identified, isolated, and schools are making those tough decisions. We're not soldiering on. When a a person's identified, they're asked to stay home. Contacts are asked to stay home. And I think those were the tough decisions that we wanted to see made. And as long as we keep doing this, we will continue to progress safely.
1: Definitely some positive step forward. Thank you very much, Dr. Janney. Always love your time. Take care, guys. Thanks for joining us. That's Dr. Craig Janney, Associate Prof in Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases at the U of C. 6.09
0: 609 on the morning news, government and public health officials uh, officials need to empower people in their 20s to reduce the risk of contracting COVID-19 instead of blaming and shaming them for dispor- disproportionately representing new infections. That's according to research and the researchers go on to say that they need to be given clearer directions on how they can better practice physical distancing. We're joined now by the chair of neuroscience at Carleton University in Ottawa, Kim Hellemans. Good morning to you, Kim. Good morning. This this is kind of refreshing because from where we sit at the radio station, we hear a lot of those 20-somethings <laughs> there to blame. But according to what you're having to tell us this morning, um, it's a case of education and knowledge, isn't it?
6: That's right. I think uh, we have to empower young folks and youth to, you know, take, take this seriously and understand what are the consequences and give them the information uh, and this approach would be something that's more in line with what we call harm reduction, as opposed to blaming and shaming, which never worked for anything, frankly. For sure.
1: And Kim, you know, it was funny, we talked about this yesterday, that, you know, the, that message, the, the way it's worded and presented, needs to be one that speaks to people of that age. Because for, you know, health officials to say, oh, young kids, stop partying. Well, that's not going to work. We need to speak to them the way they understand it. That's right. I
6: think we, you know, again from the harm reduction perspective, which is where, you know, I've done fifteen, I'm fifteen years of doing research in in addiction science. We know that when you say to, uh, you know, young kids like, "Don't do drugs. It's going to fry your brain. It's going to turn it into an egg," that doesn't seem to work. But when we say, "Okay, well here, you know, here are the consequences. Here's what's going to happen when you use cannabis or cocaine or whatever, and here are the risks." And now you're empowered with that knowledge, and then you can make the decision as to whether you are going to experiment with those drugs. Because, like you say, we know uh, youth—they want to be social, right? More, and more than any other age group, mm-hmm. that's—they're defined by their peer group at this time. And for them to be at home in isolation, without that—you know—without being able to engage in safe uh, socialization, because there are safer ways that they can socialize, that's pretty distressing to them. For, so just to say, don't do it. It's not meaningful to that age group
0: the relatability and it sounds like a generation gap to a large extent in that we don't understand how important socialization is to the younger set and they can't relate to COVID-19 because it's generally people over the age of 60 so this gap is something not new to society but the the applications need to be put into place I guess
6: Yeah, you know, it's, uh, yes, the majority of folks that get seriously ill are those that are older. But young, you know, there are cases of Mm -hmm. of youth that have gotten quite ill, right? So we had, you know, that that has to be measured. We don't want to fear monger, but we also want to present the the factual information. Uh, Say, well, it's also not just you. you Kim, we're losing you you a bit there sorry, you might have long-term consequences with this illness as well, right? There's now evidence showing that, you know, even if you're mildly ill, you can have heart complications, neurological complications, but also you're putting others at risk potentially, your grandparents, your parents, uh, those around you that you could be in close contact with. So it's not just about, and this is the thing about this disease, It's, it's it, you have to be mindful of how it's affecting others. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, Kim, I wanted to ask you because you're the chair of neuroscience, obviously, at Carleton. So when we're talking about younger folks' brains and how they function, is that also part of what we need to keep in mind in terms of the message we're putting out there? Absolutely, because we know that this
6: generation, the 20, you know, this this age group, sorry, not this generation, but this age category is also at high risk for mental health challenges. And so one of the other pieces that we know is that when... Um, younger folks 20s to 30s when they say that they're uh, lonely or they're socially disconnected that is very much relates to symptoms of depression and anxiety they very much are, are linked so that's the other nuanced piece of this is that we are you know with the physical distancing measures and 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 reducing the amount of socialization for some people this may be putting them at greater risk for mental health disorders and we know you know there's the, the talk of this echo pandemic with mental health so it's that fine balance between having some degree of socialization maybe if it's more virtual maybe if it's going for a walk wearing a mask being outdoors then we, we need to encourage what they, they can do, right? So it's about messaging. We know that you want to be social, and we know that that's important, and we know that that's important for your mental health. In order to protect your physical health, here are ways that you can be doing it in ways that are more safe given the COVID pandemic. Yeah, makes sense.
0: So getting the message across as far as keeping that safe distance but still having a social life, within your research, is there a method, is there an approach that, uh, an approach that is effective versus saying just don't?
6: Yeah, so the, the approach that seems to work, and, and again, this is taken from literature around public health that has to do with so messaging around sex, um, and then also safer use of, of substances like alcohol and cannabis. The, the approach that works time and again is harm reduction. It's acknowledging that young people are going to want to engage in drug use. It's want, want you know, they're going to be curious. It's, they're going to want to socialize. So, how can we message to them? that says here's how to do it in safer ways here's information that you should know about how how this disease is transmitted and and what is what are more high risk scenarios versus more low lowest- risk scenarios so empowering them with that knowledge to make the decision
1: and I think you know it doesn't necessarily all have to come from health officials we as parents we've got a duty to have those conversations with our kids too and and make sure that they understand from you know the, the perspective that you're talking about that you know here's some of the information do with it what you want but here so that you can be informed and educated with how it affects you and your age group right
6: Exactly, and I'm hearing from some parents that they're being seen as the mean ones because they're not allowing house parties or large gatherings. So it is about also, like you say, messaging to the parents as to how to have that conversation with their their with their with kids as to why and how and when
1: uh, is, is safe with uh, with these given... And get, and get them funky masks. Maybe that'll no, help, might help too. My kids are a bit younger, <laughs> but they, they think it's fashionable to have a cool mask. So maybe, I don't know, maybe that will catch on. There you go. There you go. You don't have
6: to wear lipstick. Right. <laughs> exactly. But isn't
0: isn't part of the issue uh, and uh, Sue and I can both speak to this being parents of of, of teens that kids uh, you know you can tell them something a million times as their parent but if their friends or somebody in their peer group uh, mm-hmm. is on board it's much more effective than hearing it from moms or dads.
6: That's right. And 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 so to get some of your, your the, like the leaders uh, that are the peers, that are the youth, that are engaged and are helping with that messaging, that is also key. That's why, again, with all the drug messaging and, and the safe sex practices, it's usually peer-to-peer that is extremely effective. So if you can get... Some of those, you know, 15-year-olds, 20-year-olds, whatever, that are really influential and that are also messaging out and and modeling that behavior, that's really going to have an impact as
1: well. Maybe we find who, what kids they think the cool parents are, (laughs) and then we send all the kids over to their house and let them share the message. But yeah, right. I think, you know, bottom line is we need to give them the information at a level that they'll understand and be able to relate to and then use when they go out and about, correct? Correct
6: that's right and on platforms that resonate with them right Right. We know a lot of the messaging comes on twitter very few users are on twitter right use those social media platforms instagram tiktok that sends out those messages in really positive empowering ways
1: and it will come across great point perfect thank you so much for joining us a great discussion appreciate your time you're welcome thanks have a good one you too that's kim hellman's chair of neuroscience at Carleton university in ottawa
0: 617 helicopter traffic for West District by Truman, a mix of unique single-family homes, townhomes, and condos
3: traveling through the southeast this morning, Glenmore Trail it's at 68th Street. There is still construction there that has traffic down to a single lane westbound. There are speed restrictions through that area as well. Once you pass that spot though, uh, westbound Glenmore is moving well out towards Deerfoot. Over on the southwest end of Glenmore Trail, just the ongoing construction at Sarsi Trail and Highway 8 to worry about. Watch for the lane realignments and signage through that area. Um, we do have light volume though eastbound Glenmore Trail from Sarsi Trail out towards Deerfoot. And Deerfoot Trail itself, northbound lanes sitting at the that standard nine-minute drive from Stony Trail up towards 17th Avenue. Southbound's off to a pretty good start, too, as you come off the QE2 down towards Memorial. Ford employee pricing ends September 30th, but there's still time to pay what a Ford of Canada employee pays on most new 2020 Ford models. Visit your Alberta Ford dealer. For the 770 CHQR Traffic Helicopter, I'm Brady Howard.